DBA is a place for everyone, doubters and believers alike, to discuss theology, current events, and a rediscovery of radical hope. Find us on Facebook at Doubters forward slash Believers Alliance and on Instagram at Doubters Believers. Good morning, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Doubters Believers Alliance, our second week with that name. I really dig it, enjoy it. I'm not really digging my hair. Uh, I feel like I'm, I look like a 50-year-old businessman. Um, what can I say? Um, yeah, we've had quite the eventful morning at the Oddland household. I think a lot of you have known that our family lives in an apartment complex over in St. Paul, and we fell in love with it, and this has nothing to do with our sermon, but I just thought people should know. Uh, sometimes apartment living sucks. Um, it has its benefits. It also has its uh, negatives. So uh, we had our na- I, like I was sitting in my living room, and like in our living room, and everyone in this room has been to our place. But there's a window, and then there's like a little like chair we have with an ottoman. Then there's like the old school. We have the old school. Uh, what do you call those heaters? Um, radiators. There we go. And then in every winter, it leaks because our apartment management refuses to fix them, all this stuff. And then it's our couch. Nothing crazy, nothing too heavy, normal, you know, whatever. You would have that in an apartment. Well, at about 9.15, 9.20, I was eating some breakfast, having my pop in the morning. And, like, I hear down below me, obviously in the apartment below me, this loud thud, this loud, like, crack. And I've heard, you know, I'm like, somebody could have ran into, like, moved something, you know, whatever. And then not even, like, ten minutes later, there's this knock on on the door. And I'm like, who's knocking at our apartment door at, like, 9.30 in the morning? Because everyone's pretty quiet, pretty, you know, to themselves. And I was, we were all in our pajamas, so I was, like, in a T-shirt and my underwear. And I was like, what in the world? So then they kept knocking, kept knocking. I'm like, oh, this is... This is pretty serious. So I quick got dressed, and then I answered the door, and it was my downstairs neighbor. And she's like, uh, just to let you know, our ceiling collapsed. And I was like, excuse me, what now? And it wasn't like the whole ceiling collapsed, but obviously there's our hardwood floor. Then there's like probably beams and wood underneath there. And then there's like the plaster and all the stuff. Well, all the plaster had just rotted and cracked through and just fell like into their apartment. And so she called our housing management company and they were like, uh, yeah, we'll come out there and take a look, see what we can do. But then like maybe go upstairs to your neighbors and just tell them like, Hey, don't like walk on that side of the, uh, on that side of the apartment. So we have this like line of tape we put in our living room of where we're like, we can't walk. Well, for our kid, and now our cat's trying to rip it up because, you know, that's what cats do. So that all happened this morning, and we didn't get up till like, 8.30. So we're already having a very uh, crazy morning. And so Amanda and I are like, are anybody, is, it, is like, our management company going to blame it on us? Are they going to say it's our problem or whatever? So I have, I have no idea if that's what's going to happen. Um We'll see. Uh, I'm just frustrated. That's not something, that's not a headache I needed on a Sunday morning on my vacation. And by the way, I'm having an apricot Hefeweizen, and it's absolutely delicious. I've never had an apricot Hefeweizen, but I do today, and it's delicious. And, like I always joke with people, we wouldn't, we wouldn't talk about it wouldn't be this community unless we talked about weather. And I would say we have gotten some much, much, much needed rain this weekend because this has been a, a very dry and very hot summer in the Twin Cities. And I want to say for the better part of Friday and yesterday, um, it, we got some good rain, um, very good rain that we needed it. So I appreciate it and I enjoy it. Um, and also with... Doubters Believers Alliance, and I've made, I've alluded to this over the last couple weeks. Um, Doubters and Believers Alliance, it, it allows us to not just 
stick to, I feel like, Bible passages or like Bible like sermons. Not saying that that there's nothing wrong in that, but it 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 uh, it lets us like if like I've said if I read a good book or I'm studying like on Buddhism or a different religion or I'm or something like in in culture is happening and I feel like I want to talk or like give a talk about it. I, I don't feel obviously there's going to be a faith element to it, but I don't feel that I have to. Be like today in James, whatever, or today in Genesis. You, you know, not saying that I'm not going to do that, but I feel like it gives us some, some sort of free freedom and some sort of uh, openness to to kind of discuss what we're going to do. So, um, and I'll probably go back eventually and finish James because James is such a kick-ass, um, such a kick-ass uh, book of the Bible, and it really. Um, calls us calls us to the mat in a lot of ways, but today I'm going to talk about something I love talking about, which is the idea and concept of hell. And I think I'm I don't know I've looked through my notes since I've been doing uh, Daughters Believers slash Revolution, and I don't think I've talked about it. So bear with me. Um, the title of this talk is literally "What the Hell." So I'm kind of being funny because I can I can swear. Um, how this how this came into my head, I guess, is because I had something I was going to go in a different way, but I had family in town on Thursday that I hadn't seen in a while, and we were all having dinner together. And my one cousin my one cousin has his PhD in, in systematic theology, and. Me and him, and I don't always see him a lot because he's really busy with work and his family. But me and him, since we both have doctorates in in like theology and pastoral and ministry stuff, like we always kind of go like toe to toe. Like he's more moderate to conservative in a lot of ways. But then like my brother and some of my other relatives were out there, and I was inside talking to some other family. And then I come out and I start asking questions, and then wouldn't you know like my whole family just kind of gets up and leaves which is their silent way of saying we don't want to get into this or we can't you know go toe not toe to toe but we can't like what you're saying and the concepts you're saying and and like the theology like we can't get there so instead of telling you to like be quiet we're just gonna remove ourselves (laughs) and go to another room but uh Obviously, you guys know, and people who listen and follow, listen to Sacred Collective, the podcast that I do, a lot of people know that hell and the idea and concept of hell was the first thing that I started deconstructing. That that and, like, the GLBTQIA plus issue, those were the two things in my, in my, I guess, life and theology and faith that I never agreed with, and when I started researching and digging deeper, those were the two that just was like, okay, like I'm done with this. This doesn't make sense. But then I so then I started talking with my cousin, who I didn't really know his his views on it. We've kind of danced around it, and then we got into this like our conversation, literally about hell and the different concepts and ideas. And while I was talking, I was like, this would be a really great talk. Um, cause I'm sure a lot of us in the room probably have similar ideas, but maybe people who are, who watch or who listen to it later might find some like solace, might find some, some historical background, but then also might be like, Hey, you know, I've struggled with this. I haven't made sense with it. So this is why I want to talk about what I'm talking about. Um, how many of us were raised with the idea that hell is eternal conscious torment? Show of hands. Yeah, everyone here. I should raise my own hand. Um, yeah, and that is something that, and you'll hear throughout the rest of this talk, not all of Christianity preaches preached that or preaches that. It's a certain stream of Christianity that preaches that. My, I'm not, and I want to fully say, like, my, I know my mom is watching. My parents didn't necessarily raise me with that, but the church that we went to as a family 
and that I was a part of raised me in that. The college that I went to raised me in that. And the seminary I went to raised me in that. And it was, it went like something like this. And you've heard this. We're all sinners. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. We're all wretches. We're all just all these negative stereotypes, characteristics. You know, we're just evil people. Jesus came and died so that, and so using that, like, what is it? The, uh, the ransom view in, 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 um, what is that theological word? It's basing me in, in just like the atonement. There we go. In the atonement theories. So God had to go on behalf of us to atone for our sins so that we wouldn't go to hell. However, you have the free will. You have the choice to, you know, reject his love, reject his salvation. And if you do, then you're going to go to hell for all of eternity. That is, that is in layman's terms, what hell is to a lot of us. Now, I will say that's evangelical Christianity. Now, progressive Christianity, and I just came out of that for eight years, they really don't ever talk about hell. They might talk about it if it's in a sermon, but literally that's all that they'll say. Um, and then I'll talk a little bit later about like the Eastern, Eastern Church, like the Eastern Orthodox and other, other Christians in, in the East. Um, they don't really talk about hell. And if they talk about hell, it's in vastly, vastly different ways than Western evangelical Christianity. So, more or less, the first point I'll make, our idea and concept of hell within Christianity is not even a universal understanding that we all agree it's the same thing or what it is. So, there's scholarships on both sides. Conservative evangelical scholarship are like, this is what hell is. And then a whole bunch of other people are like, we don't know what it is or if it exists, so let's not really talk about something that we don't know. The other fun thing when I was talking with my cousin is nowhere in the Bible does it give us a formula of this sinner's prayer. You know, people are like, how many of us have heard, oh, you know, come to the altar and, and get saved, repent, and and tell Jesus that, you know, you're sorry for your sins and and all this stuff. And people, I, I can just, I can remember in my head the first time I did that. That's not biblical. It's not. Nowhere in the Bible do you find Jesus, the apostles, Paul, Peter, anybody. You never, you never hear them say that you have to do this. Literally, what Jesus says in the scripture is, you should have no other gods before me and love others as you love yourself. That's it. And it pretty much makes that as they says that is the greatest command I give you. So when I tell people that they're like, no, 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 I have to have this personal relationship. Yeah, but it's like when you're saying I believe in God, that is in an essence a personal, some sort of relationship or idea about it. So the the whole point of the evangelicals saying that you need to have this personal relationship, if you just look at it historically, you look at it through scholarship. It just, it's not there. It doesn't exist. And when you push them on it, they just get all like, oh, well, why are you asking questions that, that, that's in here? Well, and clearly, even if you went to Bible college and read the Bible, you can see that, that that's not in there at all. So, like I just said a few minutes ago, um, the idea and concept of hell has been, obviously hotly debated, oh, I guess that was a good pun, hotly debated, and uh, talked about for centuries, literally because it talks about hell or Hades, all this stuff, even all the way in the New Testament. So it was something that people in the Old Testament, the Jews, and everyone back there in that part of the world, people knew about some sort of afterlife. And that goes all the way back to Greek thought, to, to Plat Platonic thought, Ar Aristotelian thought, they maybe not have said hell, but they were like gods, the pantheons, there's, you know, the god of Hades, you know, all this stuff. So I think there was some sort of, we don't know about this, we're going to talk about it, but we don't know if it's provable or whatever. And then Christianity comes on the scene, and they start talking about it in their own way, and their own ideas. And my cousin, who like I said, has his PhD in theology, he knows what he's talking about. I remember taking class with him 
in college and I don't know what, how we started talking about it, but there's, and I want to say, I don't know if all three of them are brothers or two of them are brothers, but, uh, they're called the Cappadocian fathers. And I actually did some research. Cappadocia is actually still a region in, uh, Eastern Turkey. So if you, so if you know how Turkey looks like way on the Western part, you have Istanbul and then way on the other side of the country, you have Cappadocia and in the split, this is getting a little historical here, in the Great Schism of the year 1054, you had the breaking, because before that, the church worldwide was just the church. It, it was, you didn't have east, west, you just had the church. So in 1054, you had the Great Schism, which the church literally broke itself off. Now, the Catholics have always been the Catholics, but this this wasn't that break. It was like everything west of Istanbul would be considered Western Christianity. Everything east of of that would be uh, Eastern Christianity or East, you know, Eastern Orthodox Coptic Christianity, so on and so forth. Oh gracious! That was a lot of no. There's a lot of things happening with loud sounds today. Um, like I said about the roof collapsing and all this stuff. So I feel like I feel a little anxious that like this stage is going to fall and I'm going to fall somewhere anyway so but you had these three early church fathers and they were called gregory of nyssa gregory of nonzianzus and gregory the great and all three of them were just the the big 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 boys on campus i will say that now what was funny is if you look in the eastern church or the eastern part of christianity you had so many Desert fathers. Now, in desert fathers, they they were lived in the desert. They were monkish. Um, they all literally were educated men, and they all they they just dedicated their life to studying, 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 studying. Live in community with one another. None of them were married or had kids or you know whatever. And so, I mean, there was hundreds, hundreds of these men, and there actually was desert mothers too. I'm not going to forget that. Not as many, but there, and all these people would it would be what you would look at now almost as like a nun or like a priest when they're like in the convent like that's about the what we can see of it but a lot more rigorous than that a lot of them lived in caves a lot of them just lived out in the middle of nowhere and they just studied talked and researched and whatever but then it was funny because when i was talking to my cousin and he's like really the only person we had in the west in the western church was augustine so Augustine was, and we all probably know who Augustine was. He said a lot of things, but like, so in the Western Church, we had one guy, and still, if you've been in any religion class, any class on Christianity, you're going to hear Augustine probably within like the first couple weeks of class because he was the guy. He was it, and he had a very, he didn't say like hell was, you know, like what we talk about hell now, but he was more of like, hey, like maybe hell is a real place. Maybe hell is something that we go to. He had a lot of other, and Augustine was a, I would just say, a, a very, to me, a strange individual, a strange man. Anyway, so you had these Cappadocian fathers, and they've wrote on a lot of stuff. They wrote on the church, they wrote on community, they wrote on a lot of these things. Well, all throughout their readings, and there's a book that I have, if anybody's interested, and it's literally this little pocket-sized book, and it was like, it's Gregory of Nazianzus and if it was like on spirit or like on being. And I mean, he does talk in there. And I mean, and this is centuries. I mean, this was, I forget exactly when it was, but I mean, we're talking over a thousand years ago that these Gregory fellows were around. And, and when my cousin and I were talking, I'm like, it's kind of funny that like the first over first thousand years plus of Christianity, Christian apologists, Christian pastors, Christian theologians, Christian philosophers, they never really talked about hell. They just didn't. They don't, they didn't talk about hell like they do now, like people do now. They talked about heaven. They talked about the afterlife when whatever that is, but they just never talked about hell. And you go back and you research is because they didn't know. And a lot of times people will tell you, if you don't know about something, 
whether you're a pastor, a professor, a missionary, whatever, maybe you shouldn't talk about it. Maybe you shouldn't preach it. And maybe you shouldn't be like, hey, this is true. Like, this is absolute truth. And I know this. So I think there was this healthy, not skepticism, but this healthy doubt of like, we don't know what this is. But from what we heard about Jesus, from what we've studied from the from the words in the mouth mouth of Jesus, we can't adequately say if this is real, if this is, you know, whatever's going on. So but then before the Cappadocian fathers, so those were three three big wigs, you know, who really started talking about hell and all this stuff. But then you then you go all the way back to origin, if we know who origin is. And I don't know exactly the dates of origin, but I want to say he was maybe to safe safe to say in the first to third century after Jesus, you know, resurrected whatever. So between a hundred to three hundred years after Jesus was off the scene, you had Origen, who is a very powerhouse within this new religion called Christianity. And so Origen, and anybody would say if you're closer to the time of something happening, your recollection, your scholarships can probably be more accurate uh, or has the potential to be more accurate than something someone's doing 2,000 years after the fact. Would we kind of agree with that? More or less, it's probably going to be closer to the truth this far back than it is thousands of years in the future. Well, Origen got himself in trouble. He, I liked a lot of what he said, but how he got himself in trouble with the church it's because he has this term he came up with called apocatastasis, which literally, if I'm not mistaken, is Greek. But literally, the the idea of apocatastasis is it's like universalism, but like on steroids. Because <laughs> universalism, Christian universalism, is literally is all will be saved. So universalism, Christian universalism, literally will say when Jesus died and rose again. He did that for all people of all times, of all places, all creeds, all religions, whatever, that Jesus died so that all are going to be um, reconciled to him whenever that comes, when he rescues his church or comes back. So that is that, so like no one's going to be in hell. But origin goes even farther in the apocatastasis is not only is that going to happen, but then Satan, the devil, his minions, his demons, they're going to be redeemed and they're going to be in heaven with us because that's the ultimate form of reconciliation. So you can see where Origen got in hot water and a lot of people deemed him as a heretic because they were like, what? Not only is it all these people are going to go to heaven, but now you're saying the devil and his demons and minions, people who fully rejected Jesus, are gonna are gonna go to heaven too? Like this is this is kind of you know bizarre. Now getting to the to the fun part where I get in trouble with a lot of people. Our modern Westernized view of Christianity or of hell in the Western world is heavily influenced by medieval literature, especially Dante's Inferno. Because we, if we, and I'm not going to go into specifics about Dante's Inferno, but Dante's Inferno is literally Dante is going through the whatever, what is it? I don't know if anybody knows this. The seven levels of hell, the nine levels of hell, one of those. So it's, it's like this whole book, and I, I want to say it's in Latin, but obviously it's been translated to English. But it's like literally Dante is this individual who's going to all these different um, levels of hell, and then once you get to the last one, that's like hell itself or like the worst place. So it's almost like he's, you know, you have the first level and then goes all the way down to whatever level that it is. And Dante was, but people don't realize, Dante was, uh, he was the writer, he wrote literature. Um, It's called apocalyptic literature for a reason. People don't realize that the Bible is broken up into different genres. What do we have in the book, uh, in the Bible? We have apocalyptic literature, which is extremely what Revelation is. That's apocalyptic literature and, and other books in the New Testament as well. 
And so that was just a genre. It's no different if someone writes a fantasy novel or if someone writes a romance or a romance novel. We have genres for a reason because that is what it's going to be about. It's going to be filled with that. Just the same thing as Dante's Inferno is apocalyptic because it's making you think. I and I, I a man is going to put some show notes in there of a of a book that I really highly recommend. It's called Inventing Hell. And it was actually written by a Catholic. Um, which I, I know a lot of Catholics who believe in hell, but I also know a lot of Catholics who don't believe in hell. And he, he more or less was writing all about, uh, like how our, our ideas of hell or modern concepts of hell are just that. They're inventions that we made. But he goes very thoroughly through, um, Dante's Inferno, um, and will describe kind of like describing are actually Dante Alighieri, who's the person who read it or who wrote it, more his background. He was very political. He was part of the Roman elite. You know, he did all this. They were like, he probably had, like, he was a business person. They're like, he probably wrote this for a particular reason and a purpose. So I, th- and it's not just Dante's Inferno that we get our modern kind of conception of, of hell, but it's one of the first. I guess writings within the medieval time period that you really started seeing uh, this this rise of hell is this real literal place. The devil and his demons are down there, and if you don't believe in Jesus, then you're going to go there. Like you really saw this push and this and this um, kick to to start really believing in that and then you could see after that how church how the catholic church and other religious people within christianity started pushing this idea of uh uh, this doctrine of hell and they started pushing it as this truthful um we know it's real we know it's true we know it's this 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 and this instead of being like having a healthy skepticism or a healthy doubt of like, hey, it talks about it in the New Testament, but like when Jesus talks about hell is like Gehenna, a lot of us know Gehenna was the garbage heap outside of Jerusalem, outside the city walls, because most people could not afford proper burials in the Jewish tradition. So when a loved one died, you threw him in the garbage dump. When your your cattle died, you threw it in the garbage dump. You threw your trash, you threw your your, your uh, waste, your own human waste there, and it was always on fire, you know, for that. And so when Jesus was talking about this is what hell is like, it was like a metaphorical, this is what it's going to be like, but never said it was a real place. So there's that. Um, so even within early Christendom, you see hell was, we don't know what it is, could be real. We don't know. Then you see, starting with medieval literature and with stuff like Dante's Inferno, you see the rise of hell is this legit place and people who don't believe in Jesus are, are going to go to hell. Well, I got into this conversation with, with my cousin and he brought up this cool point. And I, I don't fully necessarily myself agree with it, but I could see it if this if there is a hell this would be the uh so this is just my more own personal viewpoint on it so we look at um i'm i'm more of a universalist i don't think there really is a hell i think when we go through things in our own life someone having cancer someone um going through a lot of shit in their lives that's hell that's like that that it we uh, it in this world and what we experienced as human beings, we have the opportunity to be in a way like heaven. Like what Jesus describes heaven is like is what humans can do sometimes here when we're breaking bread with one another, when we maybe have a good cocktail and we're just talking and having a great time when you have a child, when you're in a good, healthy marriage. Those are all things of like, this is what God wants for God's creation. But then when you see someone die, you see a child get, you know, leukemia and die. You see a loved one, you know, have Alzheimer's and their brain starts to deteriorate or whatever. God doesn't want that. So in a, it, the way I look at it is a lot of our experiences that we deal with are just that. They're hellish. 
we would say this is a hellish experience what i've went through not saying that that is hell but that maybe that was what it, what it could be like well my cousin brought this up and it was really interesting he's like christians forget that you know we we know we use metaphors we use a dove we use you know like a fig leaves you know all all these things that we use within christianity as like like the cross we use these as uh symbols i would i, I would say of of within christianity and a lot of religions use symbols as well he's like but christianity forgets that fire has meant the 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 concept of fire we always look at it as humans especially in the west as a negative okay your house starts on fire that's not a good thing it's going to destroy everything in its path it can burn you it can kill you it can tear down your house all these things so it's a negative we see the forest fires if somebody started it just the the terribleness of what it does to the to nature we see that i mean we've experienced this here in the cities with the forest fires up in canada the last number of weeks the just it, it's absurd how much smoke it was in the cities and i've heard a lot of people my eyes itch my chest hurts you know the, it's unhealthy i mean there were signs all over the cities on the freeways like because of all this smoke please don't you know please stay home in a lot of ways so we can see that the effects of fire are really negative and you hear people say oh you know hell hell is going to be you know full of fire and this heat and and uh uh, uh, it's just negative. It's horrible. But then my cousin brought up the point is he was like, I think that's where we get it wrong, especially in the West, because he's like, but we also as Christians use, uh, we, we, we see in especially acts tongues of fire. That's supposed to be like the fire is also like the Holy spirit in places in the new Testament is talked about in the, in the essence of fire because it's renewing. It's a restorative act. So he's like, we for, we always say hell is like fire and all this stuff, and we use it as fire, fire, fire is bad, but we forget that there's a restorative act. And so then me and him started talking more, and I was like, oh, this is really interesting. And he said, and he's like, so I agree with you, Brian, that I don't think our concept of hell in the West, especially that the evangelicals push, is accurate at all. He's like, it's not accurate, one iota. But he pushed this, and it made me start thinking, so I'll just say it to you, food for thought. But that hell could be a restorative, almost purgatorial aspect. And let me explain. So, and I, growing up, I was always told purgatory. Well, that's not even biblical. That's just outlandish or, or whatever. But the older I've gotten, I'm like, you know, purgatory or the sense of purgatory or, or restoration kind of makes a little bit more sense than what I was shown or, or given when I was, you know, a young young kid or a teenager. Not saying I fully believe it, but he was trying to say, well, look at hell is, when it talks about hell, so he's like, obviously Jesus, the apostles, whatever, they believed in hell to an, a certain extent. They, they, they didn't know, the apostles maybe didn't know what it was, but they were obviously hearing Jesus talk about it somewhat. But he was like, he, his version, what my cousin said, and a lot of scholars are, you know, there's scholars all over the board. Scholars who believe in hell, scholars who don't, scholars who say that there's maybe some variation. Well, he said, maybe hell is a, res like, is a restorative thing. Not retribution, not divine eternal torment, but, and he used the analogy because like I've told my family and friends that care about me and my views, I said, I don't believe in a hell because as a parent, and Jesus always alludes to himself, it always is a metaphor as he's a father, he's a mother, whatever. Because we understand that, people who are parents. And like I always tell people, my child could do nothing. I, there's nothing that my child could do that would separate me from my love for them. Now, if they do something boneheaded and stupid, they steal something, they murder someone, yes, they're going to have to go to prison. Yes, they're going to have to pay the time for their crime. But that still doesn't mean I'm going to turn my back on them for the rest of my life or for the rest of their life. But there's going to be this kind of like, hey, there's going to have to be some sort of restorative aspect that you need to go through 
in order to get where you need to be. We're all, we've all had family, like parents where they maybe had to punish us, not because they wanted to, but they had to teach us a lesson. They don't touch the stove. Why? Because it's hot and it's going to burn. Don't run out into the street. Why? Because you might get hit by a car and die. And kids are like, that's no fair. I want to go out into the street. I want to do these things. And then part of your job as a parent is to protect them from not doing that. So he was saying, like my cousin was saying, and I, and I, there's a lot of it that made sense where that maybe hell, if someone did something so heinous, so horrendous in their life, let's say they were a murderer. He brought up Hitler. Hitler killed six million Jews. And people are like, I know so many Christians, especially a lot of Christians in my own life that were like, well, if God will restore and sanctify Hitler, then I don't know if I want to go to heaven. And I'm like, well, that's kind of a heavy thing to say. And all of us, I don't think there's anybody in the world that would say, except for maybe neo-Nazis, that would say that Hitler was not a good dude. He wasn't. He, he was terrible. But what this restorative aspect of hell is like is that maybe they go to hell for a certain extent of time. And they have to get restored. They're going to have to be in this terrible, nitty-gritty thing because they have to be properly punished for the things that they did on this side of eternity. And then after a set time, then they are released, then they're with, they're with God and everyone else. Now, I'm not saying I fully believe in that, but I'm like, I could get behind that instead of saying there's eternal conscious torment and as somebody that just turned that never believed in Jesus or whatever would be there forever. And then my cousin actually used uh, the story C.S. Lewis wrote, the children's uh, series, you know, the Chronicles of Narnia. And people don't realize, but that Lewis was a universalist. He was a Catholic universalist, which wasn't really super popular in the time that he was alive. But there was this scene, I think, in the Voyage of the Dawn Treader in the book that my cousin brought up where, you know, and we all know that Aslan is the God, God figure, is, is supposed to be God. And I don't, it was kind of murky, um, me reading it because I read it when I was a kid, but there is the scene in the Voyage of the Dawn Treader where there's, I think it's a dragon who gets burnt. He gets, he gets hurt in battle. His scales are all messed up, burnt, and, and all this stuff. And so he goes to this like healing pool and, when he gets to this healing pool, Aslan, Aslan shows up and was kind of like, hey, what, what, what is going on? Like, can I help you? And the dragon is like, I need to get healed. And I need to, like, get back to myself, but I'm afraid. And Aslan's like, why, is it a, why are you afraid? Because it's going to hurt. And Aslan's like, yeah, it is going to hurt. And it's going to be the worst pain and the worst hurt you've ever been through in your life. I'm just letting you know. And so then the dragon gets into this like healing pool and starts to kind of get regenerated and starts to get, you know, whatever. And then I guess in the story, what my cousin was saying, because he's more familiar with it than I am, is then Aslan takes his claws and starts like ripping off and scraping off the the bad scales the scales that are hurt the scales that are bad and then instantly like the 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 dragon starts getting new scales like new skin almost kind of like i got burnt on the stove a couple weeks ago and it scabbed up it was a blister and now you can barely even see it because my skin has started regenerating and 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 redoing itself or regrowing itself and so when my cousin said that i was like i'm not saying i believe that but that makes a lot more sense, I think, to people than eternal conscious torment. That That is eternal, you're always in, in your consciousness of it, and it's torment. When you say those three words, eternal conscious torment, that is horrendous. I mean, that is, that is the worst thing you can describe. Not only is it forever, but it's, you're conscious of it, and then it's torment. What? And that doesn't, I think most of us would say, that doesn't line up to Jesus in the New Testament when Jesus is like all about love, inclusivism, turning your other cheek. Well, then he turns his whole being against you, and then you're in hell forever. So I thought that that aspect, what I just said of this maybe retribu- uh, 
retribute, not retribution, restorative. There we go. This restorative act could could hold some weight for me. I'm like, I I could see. I'm like 10, 15 percent of like, yeah, I can buy that. I can see that that part of a concept and idea of hell would make more sense to me than anything with eternal conscious torment. So, kind of, I want to be good on time. This is going to be my hot take, and I'm probably going to get some pushback from people. Maybe not us here. But I'm convinced that the reason the evangelical Western world, Western Christianity, now evangelical is not mainline, but the reason that they push the idea, concept, and the doctrine of hell is it because it's an indoctrination tactic and it's the narrative in their denominations that they can control to literally scare the hell out of people to get them and get their butts into the seats. Just think about it. Growing up since a little kid in the Some is a God tradition, I always heard, like what I said earlier, you're a terrible, horrible person. God loves you. He created you in his image. But because we as people have fallen or have chosen to walk away from God, walk away from God's teachings, then we're in need of a savior. We're in need of, uh, of a deity to rescue us from our sin. And if you don't say yes to what we're saying to you, and saying yes to this Jesus character, then you're going to, there's a place called hell, and unfortunately you're going to go there for all of eternity and be in hell. Now to any kid, to any teenager, to even an adult who maybe was had never heard about that, you're going to be like, holy crap, I want to believe in this Jesus because I don't want to go to this potential bad place. And when you and I tell people, and I was telling my mom the other day, and I was telling my my, my cousin, and I used the analogy of uh, when I walked out of my more conservative evangelical upbringing, I was like, and maybe this isn't the best metaphor, but it popped into my head. I was like, when you're in a really bad relationship, like romantic relationship, whether boyfriend, girlfriend, whoever, husband, wife. And that person is verbally abusive, physically abusive, spiritually manipulative, whatever. And you just don't leave. You don't leave for whatever reason. You're like, uh, my life, I've been with this person for a year. I've been with this person for 20 years. I've been with this person my whole life, whatever. And you're just like, I know it might be wrong, but I'm not comfortable leaving. I'm going to have to start everything over. I'm going to have all these all these things I have to work with. I might have to go through therapy. I might have to go through counseling. I might have to cut people out of my life. My friend group might, you know, go away. But I said, but once you do, once that person realizes this is a toxic relationship, this is an abusive relationship, and then they walk away from it, over time they look back at it and they're like, what? Holy shit. How did I believe in this? How, what, why did I not get out of this? Why did I not see the falsities in this relationship? And I was telling my mom the other day, that is much like me leaving the evangelical faith is I, when I started asking questions and then when I f- firmly just like walked out of it, I sat back and I was just like, literally, I was scratching my head. I was like, what like this was super abusive to me this was religiously traumatic this was abusive to me in in my own soul and in my faith and i'm like i'm not saying to anybody who believes that stuff that they were like this religious trauma or religious abuse to me but my head is like why don't you guys realize you're drinking this crazy juice (laughs) you know like you're drinking this kool-aid that is super harmful to people and harmful to yourself, but it's only when you walk away from it and you're like, this doesn't make any sense. And it's so funny when I say that to people, some of my own family are like, but yeah, Christianity and faith doesn't make sense. That's why it's so beautiful. 
I was like, what? There's a lot of faith that doesn't make sense, but you should, it, your faith should make some sort of sense, right? Like, I, and I said, and a lot of what Christ tells us to, to be as like a good Christian or a good person is much of like we, of like a social contract that humans have with one another. Uh, I'm not going to go to Rachel or Amanda or Curtis and be like, and cut, curse you out. I'm not going to cause violence against you. I'm not going to break into your house or your apartment and steal your stuff because I want it. Now we know there's people who do that, but we have a social construct as human beings of, I want to be respected. I want to be loved. And if I want to be respected and loved, then I have to respect and love other people as well. Right? I mean, that's, that kind of makes sense. And, and, and so when I tell people that the church, and you can not just about hell, but this could be anything. Could be about certain theology, or, uh, about sexuality. It could be about certain doctrines. But specifically in the Western Church, in, a, in Western evangelicalism, the, the the hell that they preach, the the doctrine of hell that they preach, is not biblical. But most people, when they go to church and they hear their pastor or their lay person preaching about hell, they're going to say, hey, you know what? This person's a pastor. He or she went to school. They must know what they're talking about, so I'm going to believe it. And then when people start, like myself and others, when people start saying, hey, you know what? Like, I don't think what you're saying is right because this is why, and you do this. Then people are like, oh, oh, oh. And I'll say this about any denomination, conservative or liberal. Once you're in their fold, once you're in their church, once you're a member, your family, they're like, welcome, sit with us, have community with us. But as soon as you start questioning the narrative, you start questioning their idea of control, then they turn their back on you and you're not welcome in that community anymore. And I've experienced it in both traditions that I'm part of. You start asking, like, why do we believe what we believe? Why do we believe this? Or like in the AG, I was like, why are my queer brothers and sisters not here in church with me? Why do we preach hell? Why do we preach eternal conscious torment when that's not biblical? Well, yeah, it is. And blah, 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 blah. And, and when you, when they realize that you're not budging, then it's kind of like, well, we can't help you here. And why are you here? You know what I mean? And so it's kind of like, well, you've been a part of this community. You've been a part of this family. But now you're questioning things. Now you're questioning the, and it's like I'm not questioning them. I'm questioning the control aspect. I'm questioning the, their their need to control the narrative because if they lose that control of the narrative, then they feel like they don't have, uh, they can't influence and indoctrinate their people in their church or their denomination. So I really do think their the idea of hell in the Western world is that of we are using this as a scare tactic. I've even thought that, if I'm honest with myself, as a teenager. I'm like, people are, I'm like, pastors of all stripes are using hell as a scare tactic to literally scare the hell out of people, to, 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 I mean, and I, you, you've heard me talk numerous times about purity culture, and the misnomer is where people think purity culture just affects women. It affects women way worse than men, but men get screwed up by, by that as well. And I was taught, not by my parents, but by my pastors and by leaders in my church to literally physically hate my body. That your body is a temple, so if you're fat, if you're overweight, you're abusing your temple. Well, little did I know at that age, until recently, that I have a thyroid disease. That my thyroid has never been working properly, probably since infancy. So I've always struggled with my weight, not because of my own choosing, but because I was born with a defective thyroid that has always made me feel like I was more hungry than I really was. Sorry, that was a little tangential. But within purity culture, I mean, I was taught like, oh, you think a girl's attractive, Brian? Well, how dare you even look at a woman because you're lusting. And then the Bible says if you lust, you've already had sex with her. And, you know, if it gets bad enough, not that I would literally do it, but maybe you should poke your eyes out. <laughs> what? That's absurd. Or, hey, you know what? And if people are, and I would say this, I got in trouble all the time. People would say, well, masturbation is a sin. And, 
uh, you shouldn't masturbate. That's wrong. Or let your wife masturbate you. Or uh, all this stuff. Or like you don't want to kiss someone that's not your wife because you're taking part of your spirit away from that person. And I remember every time as a teenager that I did masturbate, I would therefore go into my room and weep and bawl and ask God to forgive me because I didn't want to go to hell. That's indoctrination. That's spiritual and religious abuse because the church was telling me I was a horrible, terrible person because I was listening to my body. I was listening literally to my body. My body is like, hey, maybe don't go have sex with someone, Brian, but like maybe touch yourself. Maybe, maybe find out who you are, what you like as a teenager, because we've all realized when we were teenagers, when all of our bodies go through puberty, whatever gender we are, it's a pretty intense thing. It's a very intense thing. And we have all these ideas and emotions and feelings going around. And then when you're in a church and they tell you, your body's terrible, your body's evil. If you're doing this, doing this, doing this, then whatever. And I literally had someone at my college when I was going there saying that if you are a single person, and you you know and you're masturbating and then you're going to hell also not only is that traumatic and religious abuse but you can kind of tell how that would hurt people hurt their own sexuality but being like okay so if i touch myself which is a normal thing that most animals in the world do and not just humans then God's going to be so mad at me that I touched myself, then he's going to send, unless I repent from it, that God's going to send me to hell for all of eternity. So my last big point is people are using hell and all these things as the ultimate scare tactic, as the ultimate form of indoctrination, because they're literally saying, you are not a good person, you are a terrible person, and God needed to die for you in order so you don't go to hell. I'm not saying the salvific part of Christianity is bad or dumb. I'm not saying that at all. But when we should be focusing, and actually, Scripture does say, I don't know if it was Jesus or one of the apostles that says, do not worry about tomorrow because we do not know what tomorrow brings. Worry about today. Worry about the day today that you're living in. Don't fret about work tomorrow. Don't fret about what's happening in the world two years from now, a week from now, tomorrow. Worry about the day you're living. Try to be your best self, your best person today. That's scriptural. So when we look at hell, be open, be skeptical, be doubtful, have a healthy skepticism. I'm For people who are watching, if you believe in hell, I'm fine. I'm not trying to tell you to disbelieve it but what i'm trying to say is prop most of our westernized view on hell is not something that's based in scripture it's based on literature from medieval times and most of our theology in the western evangelical world has only been around two to three hundred years and once we start realizing that and we start deconstructing hopefully we get to a healthy spot of something that makes sense to you, something that you can start reconstructing. Because what's funny right now in the whole evangelical deconstruction world is now people are like, oh, well, I've deconstructed to not believe in anything. And then a lot of people are saying, well, the whole point is not to be in deconstruction for your whole life. That's a phase. But what are you going to do once you get to the point of deconstructing where you've deconstructed the stuff that you need to deconstruct? How do you therefore start reconstructing? And that's what I would say, that's where I'm at right now in my life. I've deconstructed to the point where I'm like, I'm, I'm done deconstructing what I need to deconstruct. But now slowly and slowly and slowly, I'm starting to reconstruct a healthy faith for myself, a healthy theology. And I'm literally leaving by the wayside the, the theology and the doctrines that literally don't make sense and literally the doctrines that aren't biblical, but that the church presently uh pedals um i think that's pretty much it i would just say a lot of the one last thing the evangelical church i feel in a lot of ways pedals exclusivism where jesus all about in the new testament is inclusive 
and it's about inclusivism and that we need and that we need to do be inclusive i feel like i can't stand how many evangelical denominations uh, will be like jesus said this this and this and then you go back to scripture and you're like how did you how did you get this exclusivistic version of god but jesus literally tells us to do everything you're telling us not to do you know what i mean the last thing i'll say um before i answer a question here is uh I have two books that a man is going to put in the notes that have really that really opened my eyes, and they're both a number of years old. Well, within the last ten years, um, one is Rob Bell's Love Wins. I mean, that's kind of you guys know I have my uh, theological crush on Rob Bell, but he's that was the book that got him in the most trouble. That's the book that kind of got him out of the church world because he literally was saying hell really isn't something that is real, and this is why and blah, blah, blah. And then the other one was the book that uh, I uh, alluded to, Inventing Hell, which that book came out in like 2014. But really good, really, really, and those are only a couple books. If you, those are more, I would say, pop, pop theology, where like, you don't have to be trained in seminary to really get it. If anybody wants to reach out to me, there's some other books by some other scholars that are way far more uh, theologically rigorous that I could recommend, but so I've, I've, I will just say this. I've studied a lot on hell because to make sure like, am I the only one that thinks this? I know I'm not, but I want to make sure that I'm in good company and yeah, I'm in good company. So that's all that I have. But then we got a comment. Um, this is from Ray. When I was in by Bible college, I was taught don't preach the fire escape without preaching the fire. This undoubtedly backs up your statement that hell is used as as a driver into evangelicalism. No, and that's Ray, you're exactly right. Um and I've and the reason I'm so passionate about it, I get so salty about it, is not only was it used on me, but it was used on family that I know, and it was used on a lot of my friends. That uh you know, it's like fire insurance, you know, like people are like and, and I've said to a lot of people, I would, I would, I would say this. There are probably a lot of people within evangelical Christianity who are Christians, not because they understand their faith, not that even that they want to understand their faith, but that it's fire insurance. That they don't, if hell does exist, they don't want to go there. And that, and I, I would say to those people, that's not faith at all. That's, that's fear. That's an indoctrination. And like I said, you don't know that it's fear and indoctrination until you walk away from it, and then you're like, oh, okay, I see. Hmm. So, uh, I think that's all I have. Does anybody here have any questions that they would say, or we can always talk off mic, too, about it? Going once. Going twice. All right. Um, thanks everyone for watching. Um, we're kind of on a delay a little bit with getting some of our, like not on Facebook, but just getting a lump on the podcast. I apologize with that. Um, but you know, I've had friends here the last couple of weeks kind of getting everything back to normal. Um, and that's just, I guess it's not my number one priority right now, but it will be up probably. We'll probably catch up in the next week or two. Um, yeah, just keep everyone just keep searching, keep keep thinking, keep doubting, keep having a healthy skepticism about things. And sometimes it's lonely, sometimes it's very uh petrifying, but when you start digging deep into these things and start researching and you know, if it, if if it, if you come to the point where you don't believe a lot of things that you were taught growing up, that's okay. It's part of being mature. It's a part of being your own person. So till next time, till next week, I hope everyone has a great day and we'll see you later.